Chapter 25 of Hellenic History. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ryan Fahey, Fairfield, Connecticut. Hellenic History by George Willis Botsford. Chapter 25. Social Aspects of the State, 404 to 337. Growth of Individualism. The growth of individualism, which characterized the various activities of the 4th century, fostered the development not only of democracy, but of monarchy. In the political disintegration resulting from the decline, first of the Athenian, then of the Lacedaemonian power, tyrannies sprang up in some of the smaller states, and in western Hellas the feebleness of the socialistic democracy of Syracuse, in the face of the Carthaginian peril, made possible the creation of a tyrannic empire, which in extent and power was thus far unparalleled in Hellas. At the same time, in the minds of the educated, who like Xenophon had by travel seen the advantages of monarchy, or, like Isocrates and Plato, had brooded over the evils of the existing state system, there developed a sentiment in favor of one-man rule. Statesman and General Notwithstanding these favoring conditions, tyranny was less frequent in the 4th century than it had been in the 7th and 6th. The accumulation of knowledge, with its organization in departments, led to a corresponding specialization of activities. Statesmen and general were clearly differentiated. The former was now a trained orator with a special knowledge of finance and of international administration, whereas the military leader had to acquire a knowledge of the science of art and war unknown to former ages. Hence, as a rule, it was no longer possible for a demagogue to command the means of making himself tyrant, and the republican form of government thereby gained stability. Prevailing Forms of Government Aristocracy, in which a few good men ruled unselfishly and wisely for the general advantage of the community, was more a dream of the political theorist than a historical reality. Certainly in the 4th century little, if any, vestige of it existed, nor could a man of practical sense look upon it as among the possibilities of the future. The prevailing forms of government were oligarchy and democracy. With them the statesman, and any thinker above the mere visionary, had to deal as conditions capable of improvement, but too deeply seated to be cast aside. Of these two types of republic there were many varieties and gradations, so that to pronounce an unqualified judgment upon either would betray a lack of discrimination. Governmental Adjustment The Constitution hinged upon property and its distribution. The rich aimed not only to preserve their estates, but also to exploit the government and the masses for their own economic profit, whereas the poor were not content with protecting themselves from the aggression of others but strove to convert more or less of the property of the rich to the use of the state and of themselves. There existed, too, from early time a middle class, chiefly farmers in comfortable circumstances, fairly satisfied with their condition and opposed to both oligarchic and democratic extremes. Political philosophers, such as Aristotle, and practical statesmen of broad intelligence, concerned themselves with methods of preserving an equilibrium of these social forces, that neither extreme might gain the upper hand. Often the balance was upset by losses in war, often by economic adversity or prosperity, and sometimes by an injudicious admission of aliens to citizenship. Against all such disturbances, a statesman had to provide. 
His chief means was governmental adjustment, the distribution of offices and functions in such a way as to permit neither party to usurp a power over the other. At Tarentum and at Athens, for example, the offices were grouped in two classes, one filled by vote, the other by lot, the first for the better administration of the state, the second to guarantee to the poor a share in the government. Oligarchy. In the degree that a constitution departed from this balance in either direction, it became unjust and oppressive. Only the extreme oligarchy, however, or the extreme democracy, was absolutely reprehensible, and neither of these types was frequent. As in oligarchy, the government was operated in the interest of a minority. This form of constitution was the less equitable of the two. The few were always the wealthy, and enjoyed therefore an excellent opportunity, while assuring to themselves a permanent lease of power, to benefit and adorn the state and to awaken the gratitude of the masses. It is fitting that magistrates on entering office should offer magnificent sacrifices or erect some public building, and then the people who participate in the entertainments and like to see the city decorated with votive offerings and buildings will not desire an alteration in the government, and the notables will have memorials of their munificence. This, however, is anything but the fashion of our modern oligarchs, who are as covetous of gain as they are of honor. Insolent and avaricious, they used office as a means of profit in the misappropriation of public funds or in the practice of extortion and judicial oppression upon private persons. It was the feeling that the public monies were being stolen, rather than their own exclusion from office, which drove the masses to revolt against oligarchic governments. Added to the economic grievance was the intense hatred of the few for the many, expressed in the oligarchic oath sworn in many states. I will be an enemy of the people, and will do against them all the harm I can. This fiendish rancor is sufficiently illustrated by the rule of the Thirty at Athens and by the Decarchies in the Aegean cities. Now, as in the preceding century, the rule of the few meant not only an utter want of justice for the many, but a policy directed to their enslavement. Democracy. The other form of government, even more common than oligarchy in the fourth century, was democracy in which the indigent and not the men of property had the political power in their hands. In other words, democracy was a government of the many in their own interest. This is the extreme variety of the type, of which there were several relatively commendable forms. In one of his classifications, Aristotle enumerates five kinds of democracy. Of four kinds he approves, as all are under the laws, but the fifth form is that in which not the laws but the multitude rule, in which the law has been superseded by mere resolutions of the people. Among the sound forms of democracy were those of pastoral and agricultural peoples. They were robust in body, able to endure the fatigues of marching and fighting, and possessed therefore the highest degree of military virtue. Scattered over the country and engaged in their daily labor, they could not often meet in assembly. Once or twice a year they could gather for the election of officials, or for other public functions of like importance, but were compelled to leave the current administration to magistrates and council. Under such circumstances, officials were usually elected on the ground of fitness, and the government was wisely conducted. These economic conditions still prevailed over a large part of the Greek peninsula, 
as Aetolia, Achaea, and Arcadia, and advanced toward pure democracy, individualistic developments. Industrial states, however, had advanced beyond such conditions in the direction of pure democracy. Mechanics of every description, plying their various trades within the city, readily found leisure to attend the assembly, and the aged men of their families could sit year after year in the law courts. Large revenues enabled the government to pay for official service and even for attendance at the assembly. This condition resulted in part from a natural historical growth, the gradual diffusion of intelligence which endowed an ever-increasing number of the population with political capacity. It came in part, too, as a correction of political wrongs committed by earlier ruling minorities who were too narrow and self-seeking to interest themselves in the commons, and partly through the desire of sincere humanitarian statesmen, as Pericles, for the economic, cultural, and political elevation of the masses. The evils of democracy, however, were aggravated by the operation of causes which 5th century statesmen could not well foresee. Individualistic developments, beginning in earlier time, drew a large proportion of the citizens of the wealthier classes from politics. Many young men of eupatriot rank now cared only for gambling and low company. A bourgeoisie recruited from the poorest class and nursed into great prosperity by an expanding city economy could not neglect business for the service of the state in office or assembly. The duality of thought and action noticeable in Euripides became more and more pronounced as life grew more complex and specialized. In the degree, therefore, that a man devoted himself to philosophy or literature, he unfitted himself for everything else. The thinker stood as far removed from the politician as the orator from the general. The pursuit of individualistic aims deprived the state of the service and guidance of its more intelligent and cultured citizens, leaving it to the mercy of professional politicians, who commanded the votes of the poorer and less enlightened minority. For the political evils of which 4th century writers bitterly complain, they and their class were chiefly responsible, inasmuch as their own aloofness from public affairs left the democracy unbridled. The conditions lamented by conservatives, however, were a symptom and a cause of a vast political evolution slowly and silently underway throughout Hellas. The broadening humanity, the waning interest in local politics, and the aversion of cultured citizens from military life meant the decline of the polis and the development of a larger and more liberal state system, the preparation of a transition from regional to world politics, from racial to cosmopolitan culture. Athens, a highly developed democracy. It is only in the case of Athens that existing knowledge affords a view of the working of a highly developed democracy in sufficient detail to enable us to pronounce a judgment of its character. For the reason already given, ancient historians and philosophers were generally unfavorable, whereas the speakers before the assembly and courts were disposed to flatter the masses. Allowance has therefore to be made for the bias of both classes of authorities. The violence of the 400, and still more of the 30, had disgusted the moderates with oligarchic methods and had assured the popular government a permanent lease of power. The democratic restoration in 403 was therefore thoroughgoing. Against an effort, on the one hand, to limit the franchise to landowners, and on the other, to extend the citizenship to all, 
including even slaves, who had aided the overthrow of the Thirty, conservative statesmen forced the government into its old democratic ruts. Their renewal of the Periclean Law of 451, which limited the citizenship to those whose parents were both Athenians, was dictated partly by a narrow selfishness of the majority, partly, too, by religious interest in the purity of the race. In fact, the political restoration is to be connected with the revival of religion apparent in the last drama of Euripides. The condemnation and death of Socrates, 399, on the charge of repudiating the gods of the state, of introducing new divinities, and of corrupting the youth, the sacrifice on the altar of this revival, of the staunchest defender of religion and of virtue among the enlightened, was a strange piece of historical irony, and perhaps the severest blow inflicted by ancient democracy upon itself, for nothing so alienated the intellectual class. The democratic government proclaimed to those who had sided with the Thirty an amnesty, which was generally kept. Democrats who had been robbed of their estates lived as peaceful neighbors of aristocrats who had shared the spoils. Some hard feeling, stirred especially by renegades from the party of the Thirty, hindered oligarchs from office and prejudiced juries against them. But all hatred gradually died out with the generation that had lived through the crisis. Pay for attendance at assembly. It was the growing disinclination to politics, as well as the principle that all state services should be paid so that the poor might share in them, which led Agirius, early in the 4th century, to institute a fee for attendance at the assembly. From one obol it was soon raised to three. On this basis, it was easy to reason that the common citizen had as good a right as any to the public festivals. He ought, therefore, to be given free admission to the theater and to be served with food at the public expense while attending the Panathenea or other festivals, and even to be paid in money for the time he takes for these pleasures from his daily toil. Inevitably, the appropriation, at first moderate, gradually increased till it swallowed up the entire surplus income of the state. The effect was to weaken Athens in her relations with foreigners, and to render the recipients less capable of caring for themselves. Aristotle's Idea of Caring for the Poor The effort to alleviate the condition of the poor is not itself to be condemned, but rather the improvident method of distributing the aid. Where there are revenues, the demagogues should not be allowed after their manner to distribute the surplus. The poor are always receiving and always wanting more and more, for such help is like water poured into a leaky cask. Yet the true friend of the people should see that they be not too poor, for extreme poverty lowers the character of the democracy. Measures should be taken which shall give them lasting prosperity, and as this end is equally the interest of all classes, the proceeds of the public revenues should be accumulated and distributed among them, if possible, in such amounts as may enable them to purchase a little farm, or at all events make a beginning in trade or husbandry. If this benevolence cannot be extended to all, money should be distributed in turn according to tribes or other groups, and meantime the rich should pay the fee for attendance of the poor at the necessary assemblies and should in return be excused from useless public services. It is noteworthy that in the passage here quoted, Aristotle holds that the poor owed their condition to no fundamental defect of their own, and that if given a new start in life, they would, as a rule, prove themselves worthy of the aid. In fact, he nowhere blames the people for the faults of the democracy. 
even if they have no share in office, the poor, provided only they are not outraged or deprived of their property, will be quiet enough. Whereas wealth and power, says Isocrates, are attended and followed by a lack of sense and by license, want and a humble position bring with them prudence and moderation, so that it is hard to decide which of these two lots one would prefer to leave as a legacy to one's children. For the shortcomings of democracy, the demagogues were chiefly responsible. The commons lacked the special knowledge now more necessary than ever for judging of foreign policies. In such matters, they had to trust their leaders, who often misinformed them. In domestic affairs, too, unprincipled demagogues often attempted to work upon their political prejudices and their covetousness to the detriment especially of wealthy individuals. Confiscated Property It was charged that pettifoggers sometimes appealed to the juries to condemn the accused on the ground that if his property should not be confiscated, there would be no means of paying them for their service. The first intimation of this practice appears in the Knights of Aristophanes, early in the Peloponnesian War. In the period now before us, a speaker addresses the jury as follows. It must be borne in mind that you have often heard these men say, whenever they wished you to condemn someone unjustly, that unless you vote the condemnation of those whom they order, your pay will be lacking. Another asserts that the council, when in need of money for the current administration, was inclined to condemn the men impeached before it, and to confiscate their property. Such cases must have occurred. One or two instances, however, in a half-century would suffice to account for the charges that appear in literature. The speakers above mentioned assume that pleas of the kind are repugnant to the moral sense of the jurors whom they are addressing. Hence, they could not often have been used effectively. And in fact, we do not know by name any person who thus suffered. To the honor of the democracy, Aristotle has testified. Even the jurisdiction has passed from the council to the people. And in this matter, they seem to act rightly. For the few are more corruptible than the many, whether by money or by influence. It was a grievous wrong if one or two innocent men were put to death by the avarice of council or jury. But it is not a sufficient reason for condemning the Athenian democracy, for in no age or country has the administration of justice been perfect. Class Consciousness In the old days of the democracy, many a man of wealth lived moderately, nearly on a level with the poor, and was notably generous and hospitable. To the end of the present period, a large class of the wealthy retained the same character. During the fourth century, however, the growth of culture and of luxury developed a class consciousness. Priding themselves on their refinement, educated men of means despised those who in youth had been compelled to labor instead of attending school. In this spirit, Demosthenes the orator contrasts his own early life with that of his opponent Aeschines. After rehearsing his own education and his entrance upon a public career, he turns upon his adversary with these words, But you, august man, who now spit upon others, consider what fortune you enjoyed, through which in boyhood you were reared in dire poverty, assisting your father in the schoolroom, grinding ink, sponging off seats, and sweeping the room, occupying the post of a slave, not of a free lad. Compare these two lives, Eschines, yours and mine, with each other, calmly, but not in bitterness, and ask these jurors which of the two fortunes each one of them would prefer. You taught reading, I attended school. 
You performed initiations. I was initiated. You danced. I was Corrigus. You were a public scribe. I a public orator. You were a third-rate actor. I witnessed the play. You failed in your part, and I hissed you. The antipathy was increased not only by the widening differentiation of society into rich and poor, educated and ignorant, but also by the gathering of the people into the city. Whoever is poor and wants to live in the city brings all the more discouragement upon himself, for when he beholds a man who is able to live in luxury and ease, he is then in a position to see, in his own case, how wretched and toilsome is the life he leads. The sight, too, of many increasing their wealth by dishonest means created in the poor the exaggerated notion that fortunes accumulated by individuals were all due to cheating. Kremelis, I've been a virtuous and religious man, yet always poor and luckless. Cario, so you have. Kremelis, while temple-breakers, orators, informers, and knaves grow rich and prosper. Cario, so they do. The reason is that Plutus is blind and has made a wrong distribution of wealth. By passing a night in the temple of Asclepius, he receives his sight and proceeds forthwith to a bestowal of this world's goods upon the deserving. Socialistic Tendencies Never before in the history of the world were the masses so conscious of these economic social contrasts or of their own power. Under these circumstances, it was but natural that they, the controlling majority, should bring to the front a program more or less socialistic. Upon one thing at least they were determined, that the wealthy man in office should no longer exploit them for his own profit, that out of office the rich should not make an insolent display of their wealth. In illustration we may cite the law of Lycurgus, which ordered that women should not ride in carriages to Eleusis at the time of the festival lest the poor appear more despicable than the rich. Another plank in their platform required the wealthy, willing or unwilling, to contribute liberally from their abundance in the performance of both naval and festive liturgies, and in the payment of direct taxes in time of war according to their means. The amount of pressure thus brought upon the rich varied in different states and in the same state at different times. In Athens, the abundance of the ordinary revenues added to the relative mildness of political feeling, generally assured to the wealthy an immunity from exactions. There as elsewhere, however, it was felt by many that inequality of property was the root of all evil, for which the only remedy was communism. The relation of the state to private property can be clearly understood by taking into account the nature of the polis as contrasted with that of the modern nation. Because of its general insecurity, and lack of resources, the city-state necessarily exercised far more rigorously and arbitrarily its ultimate right of ownership over everything belonging to the citizens. This basic proprietorship it applied in the levy of extraordinary taxes, in temporary monopolies of some or all saleable commodities, in forced loans and contributions, and in various other ways. If the distribution of these burdens was but approximately equitable, the citizens could not complain, as property, life, family, and everything held dear rested wholly upon the security of the state. The Athenian Democracy in the Fourth Century The problem as to the soundness or decadence of the Athenian democracy in the fourth century has long been under controversy. 
One of the most pertinent questions involved is whether a citizen of Athens in this period, a man of honesty and good intentions, gifted with a fair degree of patriotism, public spirit, and neighborliness, could enjoy an acquired or inherited estate in peace and happiness. Was the state sufficiently free from social spite and intolerance, and from governmental oppression and exaction, to guarantee even to the wealthy individual liberty and the pursuit of happiness? The answer, derived from an examination of the facts, can only be an emphatic affirmative. It would be a mistake to identify Athens with the extreme democracy described by Aristotle. The normal character of her population and the equilibrium of her social classes have been set forth in the preceding chapter. The numerous middle class, together with the wealthy, ordinarily controlled politics. The absence of pay for attendance at the assembly of the demi threw this institution into the hands of the well-to-do, who thus managed the business of their rural communities and held its offices. With some modifications, the principle held for the state. The emoluments derived from attendance at the assembly and from membership of the council were less than the daily wages of an unskilled workman, whereas the salaries of officials fell short of the mechanic's pay. Hence it was that the assembly and the council were filled as a rule by men in good circumstances. The orators who addressed the assembly and guided its opinions, though generally private citizens, were as a rule men of property. In fact, the orators and officials came largely from families which through generations of public service had shown patriotism combined with a fitness for administrative work. Ancient Democracy from the Evolutionary Standpoint Instead of condemning ancient democracy because in some or in all respects it fell short of present governmental systems, it is fairer to estimate its value from the evolutionary standpoint. And in this view, we cannot but admire the vast advance made by the Greek states in the liberty, intelligence, and manliness of their citizens over the dead level of Orientalism. There is, in the world of today, no intelligent human being who would not prefer to have been a common citizen of Athens rather than of Persia or Egypt. From the 7th to the 4th century, the steady advance of democracy brought its benefits to an ever-widening circle of citizens. Progress was then blocked in part by a religious conservatism, which in 403 forced the wheels of the restored democracy back into 5th century grooves, in part by crude socialistic experimentation. But it is absurd to say that from this condition there could be no recovery, that of all people the Greeks alone were incapable of learning by experience. By no means the least evil in the situation was the indifferent or hostile attitude of some intellectuals or the reactionary doctrines of others, who like Isocrates sought a cure for all internal ills in a return to the polity of Cleisthenes or of Solon. If centuries were required for the building up of modern parliamentary states, Athens needed at least a few more generations in which to accommodate justice and equality to the rule of the many. End of chapter 25